another pot of coffee is brewing and I've actually been rather disciplined today and have even included a cup of tea in my hot drink routine. All that means is that it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and very honest caffeine fiend. This week I am going back to a time when Catherine Heigl was one of the most popular rom-com heroines and Gerard Butler chose a balance of roles rather than doing nothing but action. Based in a TV setting, The Ugly Truth follows the path of many rom-coms in the early 2000s, a little bit crude, a little bit in your face and less blatant with the romance. This is more enemies to lovers than a gentle move into love. It's more forgetting Sarah Marshall than P.S. I love you. Abby Richter, Catherine Heigl, is a lovelorn TV producer who, despite a long and arduous search for the perfect mate, is hopelessly single. The battle of the sexes heats up when her employers team her up with Mike Chadway, played by Gerard Butler, an opinionated TV celebrity who plans to put Abby through the ringer to prove his own theories about what makes men and women tick. The scene is set for the start of the film with an aerial shot from a helicopter, and then we're introduced to Abby Richter as she's rushing out of her house. From the moment we see her, it's apparent that we're meant to know she's incredibly efficient and whatever her job happens to be, she's very good at it, dedicated even. It turns out that she's a TV producer and she treats every single moment of her life as though it's something to be placed on a chart and analysed to the minutest degree. And when I say everything, I mean every moment from her job to her dating schedule. She has a list of the components that make up the perfect man, the one who will fit into her life timeline for dating, marriage and children. The morning show that she hosts is seriously suffering in the ratings and her beleaguered boss, Stuart, who is played by Nick Searcy. You know, it actually drove me nuts for ages after I watched this for the first time, but I recognised this man and I really wasn't sure where. It turns out that he was a lead in a very short-lived TV show back in the mid-90s starring Gary Cole. Does anybody else remember American Gothic? I really need to re-watch that and see if it's as good as I remember it being. Anyway, Stuart is under pressure from the network to do something about the ratings for the morning show because they're awful and it would actually be more cost-effective for them to air repeats of something like Jerry Springer or Geraldo. Abby, feeling under pressure, understandably, tells her assistant Joy, played by Brie Turner, who is way too invested in Abby's love life, that she is thinking of cancelling her date with some guy she met on a dating app. Joy points out that she's already cancelled on him three times and the fourth time is not a charm. So Abby reluctantly goes. Needless to say, with her controlling nature, the date doesn't go well. Probably not aided by the fact that she immediately picks holes in his choice of drinking bottled water over filtered tap. That will come up later on, so pay attention. Fully aware that the date did not go as it could have, Abby heads home alone to her cat D'Artagnan and starts flicking through the late night TV shows as she's getting changed. One particular show that her cat selected catches her eye and her ire. 
It's called The Ugly Truth and is about dating, love and marriage from a male perspective. Unfortunately, the host, Mike Chadway, is probably a little too honest for the overtly romantic ideals that Abby has when it comes to finding Mr. Perfect, and she ends up calling the host and waxing poetic about how men do fall in love and they aren't all obsessed with nothing but sex and body shape. As a note here, if my cat ever has enough dexterity to change the channels on my TV, then I might start having nightmares because what else does that mean she can do and hasn't? Does that mean she could have let me in when I locked myself out? The next day, Abby's worldview is completely shattered when she arrives at the studio to discover that her boss has, behind her back no less, hired Mike to work on the morning show as a guest host. Apparently, his cable show is the most popular on the air, and under pressure from the studio execs, Stuart is desperate to find a way to build the ratings. If he doesn't make it work, then the entire studio will be out of a job. From the moment that Mike and Abby meet in the flesh, there is animosity. Though it could easily be hiding something else because this is, after all, a romantic comedy. She reminds him that they have spoken before and he tells her that she definitely isn't ugly because that was his response when she started to talk about how the perfect man was out there waiting. Probably not the best and most adult retort, but then he never claimed to be mature. Mike really sets the tone for the morning show when he starts to analyse the two hosts, Georgia and Larry, played by Cheryl Hines and John Michael Higgins. They are married, but they no longer work together that well, an issue that has actually been a partial cause of the ratings drop. Mike points out that Georgia's higher salary is the root of Larry's feelings of emasculation, which has in turn led to their lack of excitement in the bedroom. For all that he's a loud mouth, Mike's actually incredibly observant, of course, this also puts Abby's nose out of joint because she knows that everything that happened on screen is going to be ratings gold and she wants him gone. Abby is still searching for Mr. Wright, but she has a very helpful sidekick in the form of her cat who, one evening, escapes her apartment and climbs a tree outside Abby's neighbour's window. The neighbour is one Abby hasn't yet met as he's new to the building, but he gives her a good show when she's balanced on a rotten branch and looking in as he's just got out of the shower. It takes mere moments, but the branch breaks and Abby ends up dangling from it by her ankles, concrete beneath her and no way to get down. So she starts calling for help. And that's when, appropriately, Prince Charming arrives in the form of Dr Colin Anderson, her neighbour, played by Eric Winter. Abby is immediately smitten and is so bad at playing things casually. Pretty co predictable, really, when you consider she's a classic type A personality. They tend to not necessarily wear their hearts on their sleeves, but they are incredibly uncomfortable when questioned. The next day at work, Abby's feeling a little bit better. She's met the man she is sure will meet every single bullet point on her list. The good mood doesn't last long though, for the moment she sees Mike she's reminded that they need him a lot more than he needs them and this puts her at a disadvantage. He's pushing things to the very limit when it comes to items on the show but the audience absolutely eats it up. I have to be honest, as a woman of the age I am, I can see massive issues with Abby's idea of romance. She's looking at it all through rose-coloured glasses, sure that she'll be able to find someone who ticks 
every single box on her list without making any compromises or changes in herself. She believes the romance novels and doesn't like it when Mike calls her out for wanting these things. To be fair though, neither of them are 100% right or wrong, but they are both incredibly annoying when they try to get their points across. Anyone can see that there is sizzling chemistry between them. They both have strong ideas and incredibly overwhelming personalities. Abby allows Mike to goad her into calling Colin to let him know that she's interested, though that actually wasn't her original intention. He then shows her the first trick on his list of ways to get a man's attention, and as much as she hates it, it works. Why is this starting to feel like something resembling the rules that went around a few years ago? Because Mike's list, her list, a lot of rules contained in both of them. Mike tells Abby that he can help her to ensnare Colin if she follows his recommendations, though he only manages to persuade her when he promises that if it doesn't work, he'll quit working on the morning show. To me, this actually feels a little bit counterproductive. The morning show ratings need him far more than they need her to have a decent dating life. And surely she's not going to be the happiest person on the planet if she's out of work. Because one failure can be a disaster in any kind of career. Mike takes her out to do some shopping and persuades her into some new lingerie and an absolutely stunning figure-hugging dress that will definitely wow any man with a pulse. And then Abby says something that actually really annoyed me. For some reason, she equates being sexy with being a bimbo. Now, I know that I personally am not sexy, at least in my eyes and the eyes of most of my ex-boyfriends, but I know plenty of women who are incredibly attractive and at the same time have so many qualifications, they make me feel dumb. Look at Natalie Portman with her degree in psychology from Harvard, or Brooke Shields with her degree in French literature, which is kind of random, that she earned at Princeton. Hardly dumb in my book. This feels like a bit of an unnecessary stereotype from a woman who wants to break the glass ceiling. Anyway, less of that analysis. Back to the film. She's in her sexy black dress when Colin shows up at her front door and asks her to go with him to a baseball game. Yay, first date, success. And all because she kept him on hold and then hung up on him, as per Mike's advice. Anyway, cue here the classic misinterpretation of something on the big screen at a game. I totally called it this time. I really did. I sat there and went, this is going to happen. I know it. Abby attempts to be sexy with a hot dog. Mike is a voice in her ear, courtesy of some equipment they've borrowed from the studio. And when that fails, she ends up humiliating herself thanks to spilling a drink on Colin's trousers. As she's wiping at his clothes, the couple appear on the Kissatron and it looks as though she's giving him a hand job, at least as far as everyone who's watching is concerned. Despite this, the date actually goes well, mostly due to Mike's advice and interference that Abby is still following. Mike watches as Colin pulls Abby in for a kiss, but then he walks away, and it seems as though he's starting to feel something for her, at least reluctantly. Things are going well with Colin, and Abby needs Mike's advice again. She seems to actually seek him out now rather than reluctantly listen to him, perhaps realising that there is some truth in what he's telling her, because it's definitely working. 
Anyway, she sees a different side of him as his nephew has shown up in the studio and is asking for advice as a girl has asked him to go to a Sadie Hawkins dance and he's not sure if he should go. The advice that Mike gives is totally different to anything he tells anyone on his show or anywhere else, as though he doesn't want his nephew to be disillusioned when it comes to love, at least not when he's so young. Abby wants to ask when she should take the plunge and actually sleep with Colin, and then Mike broaches the subject of masturbation, which starts an awkward conversation for Abby, who doesn't seem to be comfortable talking about sex at all, despite being the person who initiated the discussion in the first place. Mike tells her that until she can love her own body, how can she expect anyone else to love it? And he has a point, though he then punctuates this by sending her a gift of vibrating knickers. She's meant to be going on a date with Colin that evening, and when he sends her a message telling her that he's running late, she decides to be just a little daring, and in the living room, I live alone and I still dress in my bathroom or bedroom with the door closed, so this seems a bit weird to me, changes out of whatever underwear she has chosen and pulls on the vibrating panties. So, of course, that's the moment when the doorbell goes. Anticipating Colin, though he said he was going to be late, she is not too happy to see that it's Stuart and Mike. Apparently, she is expected to attend a meal and meeting with the studio executives to talk about the morning show and its recent success, all thanks to Mike, as well as discuss the plans for the future. I don't think I need to tell you quite how disastrous this evening ends up being, but I will say that it's as bad as you would expect, courtesy of the vibrating panties, a knocked over purse containing the control for said underwear, and a young boy who likes to play with remote controls. Of course, Mike uses Abby's distraction after her poor When Harry Met Sally impression to let her know that Colin is definitely invested in their relationship. It wouldn't be a rom-com without a full-on montage of romantic dates as Colin and Abby get to know each other. All of these are accompanied by Pocket Full of Sunshine by Natasha Bedingfield, though I have to be honest, I can't hear that song without seeing Easy A in my head. I actually have an episode on that particular film, which I will link in the info box below because I really liked that film. By this point, I have zero clue about how long Colin and Abby have been dating and Mike and Abby have been working together, but it seems like things are going well. Well enough, in fact, that Abby and Mike are having lunch together, talking about work, when he asks her why she hasn't moved to New York to progress her career. It's at this point that I realised how important her romantic and relationship goals are to her far more so than her career, in fact. She starts to talk about how divorce rates are lower, it has better school districts, health care, and everything else that people talk about when they're thinking about marriage and kids. These are her long-term goals, and they aren't anything to do with her role as a TV producer. They also talk about how well things are going with Colin, and she tells him that the couple are going away to Lake Tahoe that weekend, and she plans on sleeping with him for the first time when they're there. Mike doesn't say much at that point. There is definitely something different about the way he seems afterwards. A bit reserved and quiet and maybe distracted. The all-important weekend in Lake Tahoe is coming up and Abby is really looking forward to it. But plans were made to be derailed and Stuart does that quite easily. 
It appears that Mike has been offered a job by CBS and he's been invited to guest on The Late Late Show with Colin Ferguson. His fame is growing and CBS is using this appearance as a sort of audition. Stuart wants Abby to persuade Mike to not to sign with them, but instead sign a deal with the morning show for the next few years. Unamused, but knowing that her job is on the line, Abby has to change all of her plans at the last minute. While Mike is on The Late Late Show, he reveals that he wasn't always so cynical, but many failed relationships with women who left or cheated on him, so he's become rather disillusioned with everything. As they're headed out, Abby is fully aware that she really needs to speak to Mike about the CBS offer because Stuart has made it clear that without him, the station is pretty much done for. But she will be able to give him good news because Mike tells her that he turned the offer down, though he says it's because he wants to stay close to his family. To the film's audience, especially me, it's quite clear from the way that he keeps on looking at Abby that he made his decision based on the fact that he has developed strong feelings for her though she is still into Dr. Colin. At the hotel that evening, Mike makes a point of asking for tap water, telling the waiter that it's no different to bottled. See, said it came back to haunt us, the viewers, at a later point. And you can see that this is the moment when Abby starts to realise that though they may seem incredibly different, he's brash and seems incredibly rough and not at all the person she would choose on initial reaction, He's actually not too dissimilar to who she is, and there is definitely something there. After a very heated and chemistry-filled dance, they both decide it's time to head to their rooms. Rooms, plural. However, in the lift, things get seriously hot, and I'm saying capital H-O-T, hot. And before they know what's happening, they're all over each other. Lucky no one else is on that floor or in the lift, because that would have been very embarrassing, especially for someone like Abby. By the time she gets to her hotel room, Abby is confused because she's not exactly sure what just happened. I could tell her. She just about ate Mike's face off and dry humped him against the lift doors. She's starting to realise that there is something there when someone knocks at her door. Anticipating Mike, she's quite happy at the prospect of continuing what happened earlier, but instead it's Colin standing in the hall. He's keen to get on with what was meant to happen in Lake Tahoe. Does this make him exactly like the men Mike talked about when he was originally hosting The Ugly Truth on cable? On his floor, we see Mike hesitating. Should he go to Abby's room and see if what they had should be continued, or should he step way, way back and carry on with their working relationship? Eventually, he gives in and, yep, you got it, Colin opens the door shirtless, making it look as though they'd already been doing something which they most certainly had not. Mike walks away, realising that he made a very big mistake, and Abby follows after him, asking if she should send Colin away. She's invested in whatever is happening between her and Mike, but he tells her that it was nothing. However, the background swell of romantic music tells a very different story. You can tell we're about to hit a sad moment, which, in many romantic comedies or dramas, would be a death or a tragic separation due to circumstances beyond their control. Anyway, Abby, more than a little bit dejected, goes back to the hotel room where Colin is waiting for her, sitting on the bed, realising that Mike has been right about everything with their relationship so far, she asks him what he likes about her. 
Part of me at this point expected him to say that she was beautiful, intelligent, funny, fun to be around. And I got it halfway right. He tells her that she's beautiful and intelligent and then throws a curveball that we know she's going to throw right back at his head. He likes the fact that she isn't a control freak, which we all know full well is bull because she is the queen of control freaks, at least in this film. She bursts that bubble very quickly and gives him the rundown of all the ways in which she is a control freak. All the things that she actually changed about herself so that he would like her, which means he doesn't like the real her at all. She then unclips the extensions that Mike persuaded her all men like because they love long hair. And just like that, she is the old Abby all over again. The next day she gets back to the office and everything is in disarray. It turns out that Mike just quit. No explanation, except he accepted a job with the regional CBS office, which leaves the morning show without a ratings grabber. So now Abby has to find a new Mike and fast. I'm not sure how much time passes between Mike quitting and a romantic balloon ride event. They actually have those. Has anyone ever been to one? where Mike is hosting for his new show and Mike's replacement, Jack, is making his debut. Mike is in his element while Jack is just proving that he is A, a potential rapist, and B, an absolute sleaze. He talks about how if you only counted the conscious women, his count is lower than it is if they're included, and also how no doesn't mean no at all. Incensed, Abby has to step in, pushing Jack out of the way, And then she starts to talk about how men are unreliable and scared and weak. Mike, who is watching this live while he's preparing for his own recording, finds the entire event hilarious and decides to interrupt. Much to poor Stuart's dismay, he's back in the studio and looks like he's going to have a heart attack. He knows that Mike and Abby have a tendency to set things on fire, well, figuratively speaking, and he's just waiting for the studio execs to come down on him like a ton of bricks for the bad language, which there is quite a lot of. As the couple continue to argue, almost oblivious to the fact that they're still live on air, Abby tells Mike that she's no longer with Colin, and he responds by telling her that he's in love with her. Twice. She asks him why, And not one of the reasons he gives her has anything to do with the things that he told her she needed to change about herself in order to meet someone. The film ends with Abby possibly faking an orgasm while she and Mike have sex in her apartment. And then the screen goes black. Just in case you haven't checked any podcatchers in the last week, I went on a beautiful trip to Cozy Castle in the Cotswolds for the latest episode of The Bookshop as I talked about the first Agatha Raisin book by M.C. Beaton, The Quiche of Death. It's available for download now. This film apparently sat in development hell for over 10 years before it was picked up for rewrites. It was directed by the same person who brought us the fantastic and always enjoyable Legally Blonde, though I can't see any connection between these two on the screen. So directorially, it's incredibly different. I don't think I would give this as high a rating on the watchable scale as I would Legally Blonde. To say that this was a box office success is an understatement. 
The budget for this film was $38 million, but when it was released in July 2009, it made a whopping $205.3 million globally. And it's not as though it didn't have some huge competition for cinema footfall in the forms of films like Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Orphan, 500 Days of Summer and Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs. However, reading through the reviews and ratings on sites like Rotten Tomatoes makes me wonder if people were going to see it so they could rate and review it. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a very disappointing rating of just 14%. And Roger Ebert gave the film two out of five, stating, Catherine Heigl and Gerard Butler are so pleasant in The Ugly Truth that it's a shame to spoil their party. But toil and try as they do, the comedy bogs down in relentless predictability and the puzzling overuse of naughty words. And over on IMDb, people are even less generous, with one saying, if you're a self-loathing single woman, it's your cup of tea. I don't understand how women allow Hollywood to portray them as such mindless, bitchy twits in rehashed, degrading tripes such as this. No self-respecting lady should stand idly by as this movie frames womankind as this mindless, rehashed stereotype. I'm not going to say that this film is all bad, but if I am going to pick a single film starring Katherine Heigl that shows her better side, then it's probably going to be the other film she worked on with Robert Lukatic, the director, namely Killers. This film is full of stereotypes. The control freak woman who has delusions when it comes to romance. He's just not that into you. And the man who has been hurt and turned into a cynic. Crazy stupid love. Have you seen this film? <laughs> Seriously, have you? Did you like it? Do you share my views? I really would love to hear what you think. Do you think I've been unfair? We've come to the question and answer part of this episode. Let me know if there are any questions you would like to hear me answer about the films and shows I watch, or if there's a rom-com you'd love to hear me cover. So here goes. Did I enjoy it? This is one of those films that is a quite good watch with a group of friends so you can jeer at it. The thing is that knowing that Lukatic is responsible for Legally Blonde and Killers, both of which I can rewatch quite happily, it makes no sense that he would see this and sign on to work on it. But perhaps it was part of a three movie deal or something, I don't know. Anyway, if I were having a few drinks and didn't want to watch something that I needed to pay attention to, I may select this. Right now in the UK, it's available on Amazon Prime and Netflix, so there are a few different ways that you can watch it. Would I watch more? Not of this particular film. It was a one-off with a pretty unsatisfactory ending. Well, if you wanted a sequel anyway. The characters were stereotypes that have been done much better in other films. The control freak is played perfectly by Sandra Bullock in The Proposal, which I absolutely love. And again, I've done an episode on that one too, so go and listen to find out what I enjoyed about it. I have enjoyed Gerard Butler in many films. He was fantastic in Phantom of the Opera. And though they are just explosion-filled blockbusters, White House Down wasn't too bad either. It's just a shame they had to make sequels. It's a wonder that this film managed to make it out of 10 years of purgatory and I can't help but wonder how bad the original script was that it had to be rewritten and this was considered an improvement. 
So, how are things in the coffee household this week? I am now in week three of my new job and I think that I'm settling in quite well. Occasionally, I feel a little out of my depth, but there are people around to catch me and offer advice, something I haven't had in my most recent roles, and therefore it's a little weird, but also comforting to know that if I am stuck, someone can help me. So, work is going well. The people are nice. One day in the office a week is doable, though this week... I have to be honest, I could have done with being at home because it's currently Wednesday night and I am still writing and recording for release so you can hear this on Thursday, but we can't have everything our own way all the time. That being said, I have an example of where that definitely proves to be the case. Last weekend, I headed to London for the first time since mid-February 2020 when I ventured to see the King Tut exhibit at the Saatchi Gallery. It was amazing. So, you may be wondering, what was a social anxiety-ridden girl doing going to London on a day when not only was Millwall playing, but there was also a series of protests going on in and around the city? Well, I was actually going to the theatre, of course. (laughs) What else? Being me, I was at the station about an hour early for the train. I have a problem when it comes to trains. I don't trust that they aren't going to be cancelled at the last minute and it makes me anxious. The thought that I will miss the train I need, especially if someone else is going to be on that train and I need to meet them, as was the case last week. The journey went relatively smoothly, the carriages weren't too crowded and the train was actually on time. The problems didn't start until we got into the city and with almost seven hours to go until the curtain rose, my niece and my mum both proposed we headed to the museum district. At this point, we were by London Bridge, and I was already starting to feel the nausea in my throat at the number of people milling around by the station and the restaurant where we'd just eaten lunch. I was fine with the idea of a museum, not so keen on their choice of the Natural History Museum rather than the V&A or the British, because I knew without a doubt, given the weather that day, which was rainy and damp, it would be absolutely packed with families trying to amuse their kids with dinosaur bones and the animatronic T-Rex. At that moment, however, I had failed to take into account that we were going to be headed into my biggest nightmare about London, after the smell, which I have never liked. We were going to have to go on the underground, and not just for one train. The underground was rammed, people weren't wearing masks, they were touching everything, and they were so close to me, I could hear them breathing. I felt sick, nervous, and uncomfortable. And then we had to get another train to get to the museum district. It was much the same, and by the end of it, I felt dizzy and wished more than anything that I'd told my sister she could have my ticket instead. I'm not saying that I didn't want to see the show, but I could have done without the underground. And then, oh my God, once we got to the museum, it was so full, it was shoulder to shoulder, pretty much the entire way round the dinosaur exhibit, which was the only bit we had time to see. And then it was back on the underground and on to Victoria. Luckily, after Victoria, we ended up on a bus. Oh, bliss and such relief, seriously. But the damage was done. I had sweat clean through the jumper I was wearing and I had swallowed so much bile that's all I could taste. And thanks to the fact that my B12 will likely only start coursing through my system as this episode is released online, I was lightheaded, headachey and incredibly tired. Fantastic combination to go with anxiety. I was also struggling to breathe, but I am going to put that down to the fact that I was feeling incredibly anxious. The show itself was amazing. 
I went and saw six. And if you haven't heard of it, then I would honestly recommend trying to find a live recording of the soundtrack because the Studio One doesn't quite do it the justice it deserves. Ten women on stage at all times, four musicians, six singers, and it was like a concert. As I have already said, it's currently Wednesday evening as I write this, and I have still got the songs in my head playing over and over again. They were that good. The less said about the journey home, the better. By this point, I think that neither me nor my mum were in any fit state to converse civilly about anything. We were tired, we had been out for over 12 hours, and we no longer had anything to talk about. That added to the fact we didn't have the buffer of my niece any longer. It was incredibly awkward. Ultimately, though I am still feeling sick at the thought of the underground and wondering how many people are apparently exempt from wearing their masks on public transport, as TFL asks them to, I'm also proud of the fact that I didn't throw up, however much I thought I would. And my panic attack didn't happen until I got home, curled up on the sofa with Darcy. Luckily, I was also within reach of my medication and a cup of hot chocolate. Sitting down in the quiet, watching an episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch on Amazon and cuddled up with my cat was the way I ended the night and staved off the usual cyclical attacks that occur when I place myself purposely in a stressful situation. Of course, it's also the reason why I'm so far behind this week, but I think it's a pretty good one if you ask me. So... That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the listen and I'll be back next week with more. Don't forget, the bookshop will be open again on Monday with a brand new review and I hope you'll like what I have to say about my next book. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or just a star rating over on Podchaser. I really love reading what you have to say and no feedback is bad feedback if it's constructive. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs, on Instagram at not before coffee podcast, or I'm now on good pods at not before coffee. Well, I need to go and get another hot drink as I definitely haven't had enough today. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.